one of the things that my family and I used to love doing together when my family was all together for the few years that that happened, as we really enjoyed watching boxing. Uh, I know it's weird, but it's a Mexican thing, trust me. Uh, we really enjoyed looking at the latest fights, Oscar De La Hoya. In fact, I saw his truck recently, which was gold-plated and all these cool things. You don't know who he is. But anyhow, we liked watching boxing. Um, and, and one of the boxers that I found out about that I, I admired for a, a season, although I, I kind of gave up pretty quickly for, for a few reasons, but uh, Muhammad Ali, this guy was known to be, in fact, <laughs> according to his own words, he was the greatest. He was the greatest. Well, there was a time when America was going through a war and he decided not to follow his draft. And so um, he got exiled from boxing, more or less self-selected. And he did that at really the prime of his career. The guy was fit and he was dominating. Uh, but then when he decided to ignore his draft, he, he was exiled from um, the, the Boxing Federation. Three years passed. And now at age 32, 1974, or 31 perhaps, I think somewhere in the early 30s, he enters the ring again. This time, he's going to go up against uh, Joe Frazier. Now, he was also a good boxer at the time, and so everyone thought that, okay, Muhammad Ali's coming back in the ring, but he's really missed the prime of his years. Muhammad Ali goes in the, in the ring with Joe Frazier and loses. He takes another fight, this time against Ken Norton couple months down the line. Ken Norton, of course, is another great boxer. Muhammad Ali goes into the ring and he loses. <laughs> so fast forward and you got George Foreman, who is most probably famously known for his grill. The George Foreman grill. This is the same guy. So he's, he's, he's fighting George Foreman in what is called the rumble of the jungle. And Everyone is fully expecting Muhammad Ali to go in the ring and get pummeled because George Foreman not only was a great boxer, he's at the top of his game, but he also knocked out Ken Horton and Joe Frazier uh, in two rounds. Two guys that slaughtered Muhammad Ali, George Foreman took out pretty easily. Muhammad Ali, being the loudmouth boaster that he was, said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play the game called Rope-A-Dope with this guy. Rope-A-Dope was Muhammad Ali's way of saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tire this dude out. And so you see what Muhammad Ali's doing, and there's, there's George Foreman there pounding away at him. Uh, Muhammad Ali would allow, allow Foreman to really just keep landing punches on him. I mean, he was trying to avoid, he wasn't trying to get hit on purpose, but he went eight rounds with Foreman letting Foreman hit him, punch him, push him around. And so he's taking hits left and right until he sees his opportunity and he realizes that Foreman is tired. He did, in fact, rope the dope. And in round eight, he knocked him down. Incredible story. It's an underdog story that's also kind of a, a top dog because he was at the top of his game and yet he lost all these fights. And so what you see here in the life of Foreman is really similar, or rather life of Muhammad Ali is really similar to the life of the church. Right now, we are in many ways like Muhammad Ali against the ropes. The church of Jesus Christ, not of Latter-day Saints, is against all odds against the world. The world is coming up against. The world is strong and powerful. The world has a track record of being uh, victorious. And here we are as the church up against the ropes trying to stay afloat, trying to stay in the ring, so to speak. Well, in this, in this letter, as we work through 1 Peter chapter 2, what we're going to see is Peter's concern for how the church is to, is to stay alive during the season of being rope-a-doped, <laughs> during the season of being pummeled and hit hard against a, a, a world that persecutes the church. 
And so this particular text that we're going to go through this morning really is about how do we endure so that we don't only stay in the ring, but we eventually win. And just like Muhammad Ali had to go eight rounds being pummeled by his, uh, his opponent, so must the church also go through a season of being pummeled by the world. Peter, though, says, here's what you need to know in order to stay in the ring. Here's how you're going to fight and win. Here's how you're going to be victorious, ultimately. And it's not easy. Just as, just as it wasn't easy for Muhammad Ali, he had a train to be pummeled. And the same way, the church has to be ready to be pummeled as well. It's not going to look the same for us. And in fact, even the persecution that you see today isn't the same as what you're experiencing, uh, what your brothers and sisters across the world are experiencing. We get made fun of. We get looked down upon. You know, we might get called haters and different names. But really, it's not that bad for us yet. The reviling and the mockery that the church receives today really is small by comparison to what our brothers and sisters of yesteryear have gone through. And even those who go through today who still go through some severe persecution, well, Peter has words for us to help us stay in the fight, how the church should act in a time of persecution, and eventually how to win. Take a look with me. First Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 1. If you were with us last week, this is on the, the heels of what he was getting the church to understand. In chapter 1, he was all about the beauty of the gospel and how we're saved, and now we're to live in a certain way. We're to live with our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us, looking at the, the last round, so to speak. And so here we go in chapter, here we go, chapter 2, verse 1. One through three. Look at that with me here. So, um, and we have to remember that there's, a, there's an argument there. There's a so. This is a so why. Here's the reason why. Um, and this, oops, pretend you did not see that. My bad. Tech guys, please forgive me. I know I shouldn't. Can you guys just put the last, the last slide up? That'd be great. Thank you. I'm going to close out my application and then go back into it because I'm totally messing this up. <laughs> and it's still not working for me. Okay, current to next. Thank you. Okay, here we go. For real this time. So the two things you had to see, the first is the so, the second thing is the put away. We're going to talk about those things, but he says, so as a result of the, the last thing I just said, put away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, and envy and slander. And he says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Okay, so at the beginning of verse 1, Peter's pointing your attention to something very familiar to the Christian church, the put off and put on concept, right? He's saying put away. The idea here is put away anything that would hinder your relationships within the church. Um, and that's built off the argument. If you have your Bible with you, um, look, at the, the, look at the end of 1 Peter. It's built off of the argument that he, he starts in verse 22. Chapter 1 of verse 22, he says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a, sincerely, a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Verse 23, since or because you've been born again, not a perishable seed, but imperishable. And so he's saying, because you've been born again, because you've been saved, live in this certain way with one another. Put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Why? Because you've been born again of God. And that's no small thing. And then he says, like newborn infants, long for. Now, you might immediately see something in verse 2 that you should not see. If you're, if you're a Christian, especially a Bible-believing Christian, you might say, oh, long for the pure spiritual milk. That means read my Bible. And yes, it does mean that, at least by implication. But what, is, what exactly is Peter saying right here? He's saying long for, long for, crave it. He's saying, if, if indeed, if you indeed, you have tasted that the Lord is good, instead you should long for, which is another, again, another word to say, crave, 
earnestly desire. It's the idea that you're giving attention to the craving that you naturally have because you've been born again. And in fact, Peter's continuing to draw off of the analogy here, like a newborn infant, because you have been born again, you now, like a newborn infant, should crave the word of God. A baby, if you've ever had one, happy Mother's Day, um, is, is incessant in his or her desire to get mom's milk or whatever other stuff that you're feeding the baby. The baby demands it. The baby thinks about that. In fact, um, I had to wake up several times during the night to tell Kristen to get up and feed the baby. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what's happening is that baby's hungry. The baby rightly wants to eat because it's a baby and it's alive. In the same sense, Peter says, because you're alive, because you've been born again, crave the spiritual milk of God. Crave his word. Foster the kind of love and affection for God's word that makes you say, yes, I want that. If you've ever had a delicious steak, and I know I talk about food a lot up here, but that's okay. If you've ever had a delicious steak, like from Roots Chris, or I had this pineapple steak from uh, Houston's, hat tip to the Zootels for that one. There's a certain sense now where every now and then, like I just get a hankering for that steak. Like, give me some of that steak. I want that sink my teeth into that juicy, delicious, medium steak. Some potatoes, no veggies, because who needs that? <laughs> I'm just craving that. And that's a good thing, praise God. And whenever we have that for God's word, if you're a Christian, you have times in your life where you're saying, man, I just want to feast in God's word. I want to know what God's word says. Peter says that's a good thing because you've tasted the fact that God is so good that you should, uh, you, you should encourage that kind of craving. You should encourage that kind of love and affection for scripture. And in that way, when we do this, and in fact, by the way, just so you can see it here, um, what you need to recognize is in this particular text, um, oh, I tried to erase all that. There's no easy way for me to erase all this. I'm just going to hit the back button several times. Boom. Okay. Um, the, the, the imperative in this text is that right there. So you got verse 1 and verse 3 that has sandwiched in between it the idea and the concept that you should long for God's word. Let's just put it this way. If you're thinking about the boxer analogy, we're in the ring, we're suffering against some kind of persecution. What, what Peter is encouraging us to do is it to be sustained by the strength of God's word, to be grown by the strength of God's word, to have such a healthy appetite for it that that is what keeps us in the ring. Uh, Muhammad Ali, every boxer, they get, the, you know, they get the water guy putting water in his mouth so that during, during rounds he can be refreshed and replenished and get back out there. Well, the water for us is really the milk of the word. We need to develop a healthy, strong appetite for scripture. If we're going to stay in the battle, if we as a church are going to continue to do what God has called us to do, we need to be able to have a strong appetite for God's word, and we need to foster that and develop that. There are some places that I do not like taking my wife. It's a true story. For instance, um, one, of my, one of my favorite places to go, especially on a, on a special occasion, like today perhaps, um, is, is uh, this place that's a Brazilian barbecue buffet. Um, this place, they will come by your table like magical fairies and deliver you all the steak you want. And they have different kinds of steak. They have filet mignon, they have uh, bacon-wrapped steak. Uh, they, have, they have weird stuff too, like chicken hearts and chicken livers and stuff like that. And I guess, sure, try it out. Um, but they, they keep walking by with their, with their carts. And if you have on your table the, the green, like I guess it's a placeholder. So it's like, it looks like a, a cup holder. If it's green, it means keep bringing me steak. If it's red, it's please stop, I'm dying. So <laughs> I keep it green for as long as God will allow. 
And they just keep coming. And so like, I'm trying to eat as much steak as God will give me. And there's my wife. She's eating like half a piece of steak and she's full. She's got, her, she's got the red up already. She drank two ounces of water, half a piece of steak, and she no longer wants any more food. And I'm like, okay, that doesn't make sense to me. You've wasted so much money by not eating all the steak. So then I feel like I have to eat more. And I'm like, kids, keep eating. Come on, we can do this. Let's go. <laughs> go back to the bar. Don't waste your, don't waste your time on the, on the lettuce or the vegetables. Foster a healthy appetite. <laughs> God wants us to act like me at this Brazilian barbecue when it comes to God's word. <laughs> we should have the kind of appetite that, contrast to a light bird-like eater like some of you guys are, um, we should have healthy appetites that are demanding more and more and more. And that comes through an understanding that God's word is really what's going to do that for us. Why would that be helpful for us? Well, first and foremost, I think you can look at verse 1 uh, of, of Peter's text. And what he's seeing, the contrast here is if he's looking at longing for the pure spiritual milk of the word, he's assuming or he's connecting verse 1 to verse 2. And he's saying, when you long for the pure spiritual milk of the word, you're going to have a different relationship with your brothers and sisters. In fact, you should. If you're born again, this is naturally going to happen. So one of the reasons we should foster the kind of strong appetite is because it produces healthy relationships within the church. Now take it out of the boxing ring for a second and put it within the walls of the church. One of the biggest things that will destroy Compass Bible Church or really any church that you go to, True North, uh, the, the high school ministry, the college ministry that you end up going to, is bad relationships. When relationships are broken, the church is broken because the church is built upon relationships with one another. High school drama follows you. Did you know that? High school drama, I, I remember it well, and I hated it, uh, sometimes liked it, but I mostly hated it. And what you have to realize is that high school drama is high school drama because we're still working things out. We're still acting like high schoolers in so many ways. We're learning how to be mature. And if that doesn't happen, then that also follows you to college and then into adulthood. And some people are still emotionally stunted and still struggle to have healthy human interactions. Well, Peter is saying, when you're craving God's word, and that's the central, that's the central point of your existence, that's going to have an effect on your relationships. He talks about malice. What is malice? It's ill will. It's the kind of mentality towards somebody that says, I don't like you, and I don't, wanna, I don't want to like you. I'm just going to hold a grudge against you because you said that one thing to me that one time, and I'm never going to forgive you for that. It's malice. He talks about deceit and hypocrisy. Let's put that same person in your mind, and now they're going to walk by you, and you're going to smile at them and say, it's so good to see you. Love you, sister. Love you, brother. But on the inside, you know that you're deceptive. You're hating them. You're upset with them because of what they did or said. That's deception and hypocrisy. It's lying, essentially. Or how about this? Envy, Peter says. Don't envy one another. Envy, as one famous atheist said, envy is what keeps our economy alive. Um, Hitchens, by the way, um, who's no longer with us. He said that envy is a good thing. We should promote and encourage envy and covetousness because that's what's going to keep our economy going. That's what continues to push people beyond their social station. But the opposite is what God says. Don't envy one another. Don't feel like you're entitled to someone else's stuff. Don't feel like you're the one who deserves certain accolades or certain positions. Uh, Peter's saying, essentially, you should be able to look at yourself with humility and recognize that all that you have is what all God's given to you. You don't deserve what you've, what you've been given. You've been given God's grace. You've been given God's kindness. And of course, the last one, I think we all have heard this one and seen this one before, is slander. Peter says, uh, don't slander one another. Put all slander away from you. Now, slander is speaking evil about someone and trying to get others to follow along with you. It may be true. You might say, well, this is, I'm not saying anything that's not true about this person, but the way that God wants us to deal with certain situations like that is not to spread rumors and slander about people. And we know what that's like. We know what it's like to hear something about someone and be like, oh, he did what? She said what to him? Oh, man, I thought they were a Christian. I thought they were good. I thought, you know, and on and on it goes. Peter's saying this is no place for the church to act, 
out. This is not the way the church should be acting. And when we love the Word of God, the Word of God is going to act like a governor on a, on a car speedometer. Uh, not a speedometer. The, the Word of God is going to act like a governor on your heart. It's going to control these impo- impulses and cause you to be humble, meek, loving, forgiving, instead of all these things that Peter points out to. These all destroy relationships. He continues on. Look at verse 2, another effect of the Word of God. He says, long for the pure spiritual milk. And here's something interesting that I I thought. I I wouldn't have said it this way if I were writing the Word of God, but this is why he wrote it, not me. He says, that by it, and by it, what is the it right here? Ask yourself the it. What is the it? It is the pure spiritual milk, right? That by it, the pure spiritual milk, you may grow up, so there's maturity there, into salvation. Here's what's happening. Peter is saying that a genuine Christian who has been trained by the word of God is going to, by nature, or rather by supernatural means, be matured into salvation. Well, wait a minute. Didn't we get saved by grace through faith? Didn't Peter just talk about that in chapter one? He said, you've been born again to a living hope and born again to an inheritance. What about all those things? How's he saying again that we're growing up into salvation? Do we have it or don't we have it? Yes, we do. And no, we don't. (laughs) There is a sense in which salvation is now and not yet. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. Peter's focus in this whole book, if you remember, is eschatological. That's a big word to say end times focused. Peter is saying saying here that when you're feasting on the word of God, when you're craving it, when you're making that a major part of who you are, that's going to mature you and prepare you for the last day when you stand face to face before God. Essentially, what he's saying here is that not only does the word of God produce healthy relationships, it produces Produces sanctification. That's another way that we understand the word salvation. There is a future salvation that will be consummated, that will be fulfilled in the last day. But until then, it, pro- it produces maturity in us. It produces love in us. It produces sanctification in us. When we're, when we're creating an appetite for God's word, it curbs the appetite for sin. And Peter's saying we should really be loving God's word because of what it produces in us. By the way, I could also say it this way, just to make a quick comment. When you neglect that craving for God's word, when you say no to that and you instead pursue whatever else in its place, I can also say with confidence that the neglect of God's word will produce the opposite of sanctification. The neglect of God's word is going to allow you to start acting out in ways that are contrary to God's word. Think about this. How long, uh, how long does it take for you to get disconnected from God? You might go to church and feel good and motivated for a few minutes, but then when you get home, it's like, all right, back to the normal. Uh, when we're connected to God's word, then we're making it a, a, a central part of our life, not only as, as individuals, but the church that has a lasting effect, an accumulative effect as well. Peter's saying, if, essentially, if we're in it, we're going to feel the maturity. We're going to experience maturity. But when we're away from that, when we neglect our Bible reading, when we neglect our time with God, when we neglect coming to church and being around other Christians, that's going to have an effect as well. That's going to make the church weak. It's going to make you weak. It's going to have a lasting effect on you. Produces healthy relationships, produces sanctification. And that last verse, again, it's interesting that he says it this way, but he says, if. If is a conditional statement, isn't it? If. And go to the store if you have enough money. Uh, ask her out if you think she'll say yes. Um, there's a statement of maybe this, maybe not. Maybe it will work, maybe it won't work. So what is Peter saying here? If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, then do the things in verses 2 and verses 1. Here's what I think is happening for him, and here's what are happening in his mind He is saying, because, I guess you could say it that way, because you have tasted that the Lord is good. By the way, this is coming from Psalm 34. Because you've tasted that God is good, there is within you a right and good desire to know God's word, to love God's word, and to live it out. 
That's the basic deposit that comes when we're saved. He's saying, as a Christian, at the very least, the reason you came to Christ is because you recognize that God is so good that to deny him would be to deny the very thing that was most helpful for you. He said, because you know that the Lord is good, then long for the pure spiritual milk. Put away all malice and deceit. But that if is kind of bothersome. I do think he, he does intend for there to be a little bit of self-introspection to say, okay, do, have I tasted that he's good? Am I acting that out? Am I living in that way or am I just pretending? Young person, if you have tasted that the Lord is good, then there should really be a sense in which your salvation is proven by your continual feasting on the word. Where our salvation is proven. It's not earned, it's not gained, but proven by our dependency upon God's word, our submission to it. The church is built up on the foundation of the apostles and prophets who delivered to us what? God's word. The church is sustained and strengthened in her battle against wickedness internally and, and persecution externally by what? God's word. It really comes down to us, uh, it really comes down for all of us to God's word being the centerpiece of the church. That's why we're Compass Bible Church. And that's why we so much love to talk about his word, love to preach about his word, because really what's happening here is that we are cultivating a strong church that has healthy relationships, is growing in sanctification, and our sanctification is proving the fact I, we are saved. We are following God because look at the fruit that God is producing in us as we feast on his word. Young person, you should be a lot like the psalmist. You should feel like one, Psalm 139.17 says, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. You should be praying like Psalm 119, 14. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. Or Psalm 119, 18. Open my eyes, God, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. There should be a part of us as the church of God, and that's what you're part of if you're a Christian, where we long and love God's word. That's one of the things that Peter says is going to keep us in the fight. He continues on, though. That's not all. Look at verses 4 through 8. He says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, uh, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Okay, what is Peter doing now? Think about what you just read a second ago. He's saying, put away malice, long for the pure spiritual milk. If indeed you taste that the Lord is good, as you come to him. What is, what is Peter doing? What's he trying to accomplish? Well, here's what I think he's doing. Let me point it out to you. Look at all the things that he's trying to highlight for you. Okay, as you come to him, who is the him? The him is the living stone himself, which of course is, Sunday school answer, Jesus. Did someone say Bible? No, not the Bible this time. As you come to him, Jesus, who is the living stone, and get this, he says, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. That's going to be an important theme in a second. He says, you yourselves, now he's pointing back to us, you yourselves, you Christians, you first century church, like living stones, and look, there you see some repetition there, living stones, living stone, like Jesus, are being built up, being built up there, that's passive, we're being acted upon, being built up as, here's some more repetition, spiritual house, spiritual sacrifices. You're being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Now, those two, com those two things together are connected, the spiritual house and the holy priesthood. There's a connection there that we'll talk about. Those things, he's saying, you're offering spiritual sacrifices now. And how is this working? How is this acceptable? It's acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Okay, I know I just prayed a lot at you. 
There's a lot of colors on the screen right now. But I need you to understand that what Peter is trying to do in your heart is say, yes, yes, that's right. At some point, as someone is reading this letter to the congregation, someone stood up and said, amen. You know, someone's like, yeah, I'm stoked about that. Because look what Peter's doing. He's saying, okay, you come to him, Jesus. Jesus was chosen and precious to God. Okay, you come to God. Living stone, living stones. You guys are the living stones. He's the living stone. You come to God, and you're also chosen and precious. Just like Jesus, you're chosen and precious. But just like Jesus, you are being rejected just like Jesus was rejected. That's what he's saying right there, right? Rejected in the sight of men, but inside of God, chosen and precious. And then he says, let me now talk more about you guys as the church. You yourselves are being built up as a spiritual house. And we'll talk about what that is. To be a holy priesthood, which by the way, obliterates the Old Testament priesthood, right? Doesn't it? That Old Testament priesthood, God, you are the holy priesthood to offer what kind of sacrifices? Bulls, goats, lambs? No, spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Someone, someone as they were reading this, someone was like, yes, that, yes, incredible, amazing that God would do this for us. Incredible that God is so kind to us. And then Peter begins quoting the Old Testament. He's saying, uh, as it stands in scripture, verse six, behold, I'm laying a stone in Zion. Okay, remember, stone. We just read about the living stone, right? A cornerstone who is chosen and precious. Peter just quoted that. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Okay, so shame is the opposite of honor right here. So he says, so the honor is for you who, what? Work hard enough? Give enough money? Attend enough Saturday services, Sunday services? No, the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, and this is where it gets sad here, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And Jesus is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to people. These people stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Peter is contrasting some very important concepts here. He's saying, you church, first century church, the dispersion, the Christian exiles, are like Jesus. You're rejected by men, but you're chosen and precious. And not only that, Christian church, not only are you like Jesus in that regard, but you are also being built up by God to be a holy nation, a royal priesthood. He's going he's to say later on, you are precious in the sight of God, though you're being, but you're being persecuted. And not only that, just like God exalted Jesus, in the same way, you, the church, though you suffer now, because you believe in him, you're not going to be put to shame. You're being shamed right now, yeah. Some of you guys are going to be stripped naked and thrown into the, to the, the Colosseum, sure. There's shame right now, but eventually, you're going to see Jesus exalted, and you're going to be exalted with him. How encouraging would this have been to the New Testament church who's suffering persecution? How incredibly uplifting would this have been to them to say, yes, my eyes are on the prize. I'm on the winning team. Jesus is the victor. He is going to win. I'm on his side. No matter what's happening right now, I can celebrate and rejoice the fact that I have such a great honor in being part of Team Jesus right now. To put it differently, point number two, um, you need to... Oops, I forgot to show you the cornerstone. I, okay, let me show you the cornerstone real quick. Um, you, might under, you might understand uh, or not understand what, what the Bible means when he says that he's a chosen, uh, the chosen stone, precious in the sight of God, the cornerstone. The cornerstone was used in the corner. That's why they call it a cornerstone. Uh, it was used to level the building. It was used to measure the rest of the building. That stone was the representative for the rest of the building. If you take that stone out, everything else kind of crumbles to pieces. That's a stone that is used to level. That's a stone that the, the, the rest of the building is built upon. That's the cornerstone. And God is saying, I have a cornerstone. His name is Jesus. 
the religious leaders of your day uh, rejected him and tossed him aside. But that cornerstone, even though it's been rejected, will be exalted. He's chosen and precious. Some of the people today look at the church and say the church is not, um, is not all that special. It's not that precious. It's not that awesome. I don't follow Pope Francis, but I did find this tweet interesting. He says, with her yes, Mary became the most influential woman in history. Without social networks, she became the first influencer, the influencer of God. I don't know who she is, but she says Jesus literally faked his own death for, for followers, though. So, yeah, and, and it's an, an important to realize that the first century church, even though they were getting a, a little bit different persecution than you and I were, this is pretty common. People are not very uh, slow to, to make fun of the Christian church. In fact, I did some watching uh, of some cartoons that I used, to, I used to see when I was a boy, and I realized how antagonistic toward the church that uh, the Simpsons is. I mean, the Simpsons is just an example. I'm not picking on them. There's a lot of different people and TV shows that have no problem making fun of Christians. The, the, the Ned Flanders, of course. You, know, you guys know Ned Flanders. He's the high diddly ho neighbor kind of guy. That He's the silly, upstanding Christian who's really an idiot when it comes down to it, but sure, he's a nice guy. He's not a bad neighbor. Um, this kid, um, Nilhouse, uh, in this particular scene says, no, I don't follow some dopey religion. I use this for, I forget what he says. Um, but it's things like that. And if that weren't enough, you also know that some people like to take art to the furthest level possible. And one of the things that they like to do is put the, the crucifix, Jesus on a cross, in, in a pail of urine and say that that's art. Okay, we'll do that to the prophet Muhammad's image and let's see how far you get with that. Or here's another one. Uh, one artist made the Virgin Mary out of elephant feces and thought that that was appropriate and right and good for a figure. Yeah, we're not, we don't idolize Mary, obviously, but we still honor her. And people look at the Christian faith and say, well, that's, that's silly, that's stupid, and really the church is the butt of the jokes. I think what you have to realize, young person, is that as the Christian church stands today, we may be weak and we may be in the corner taking, taking beatings, but someday Jesus will come back and he will establish his kingdom and he will set things right. In the meantime, you and I should feel honored to be part of King Jesus' team and to suffer persecution along with him. You need to recognize the honor of being part of the church. Yes, weak and lowly now. Pushed down, shoved around, made fun of, criticized for our, our, our holding to an antiquated book with our old-fashioned beliefs and principles. Sure, people are going to do that and call us uh, different names, but we can recognize the fact that the church is an honor to be a part of the church. And by that, I don't mean the building, of course. I mean the people that comprise the church, all the New Testament believers and those of us who are in this room who call ourselves Christians, who have repented and turned our trust to Jesus. We are the church. And reasons why we should understand that it's an honor to be part of the church. You need to first of all recognize that in verse 4 and 5, uh, what you're seeing there, oops, let's try that again. What you're seeing there is that we reflect Christ. We, we are honored because we get to reflect Christ. And just as I made the connection for you, Jesus is the living stone, living because he's resurrected, stone because that's, that's the text that he's quoting. Jesus is a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves are also like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. You're, you're being connected and you're reflecting Jesus in the way that you live. What an honor that is. I, I, I'm not in the shoes. I'm not Josiah, but I do know that there are some shoes that are actually really cool. And I found out about a pair of shoes that apparently sold for the most money ever, at least at, to this point. And my, this article is a few years old, so maybe there's a bigger one than this. But this is the one I found. Apparently, 
Michael Jordan played a game while having the flu, and it was one of the championship games against the Utah Jazz. And they called, the, the shoes that he wore the Air Jordan 12s, okay? So here's him in that particular game. The shoes on his feet, the Air Jordan 12s, were eventually sold at auction for, throw out a number, go ahead. Not a million, that's, that's I, man, I'm crazy pants if it's a million. $104,000 for a pair of Michael Jordan, they're called the, the flu shoe, or the, yeah, the flu game shoes, Air Jordan 12's flu. You can get a, a pair of 12's for like three or 400 bucks, 600 bucks is the most I saw. Uh, but if you want those shoes, the ones that he wore and sweated in during the game with the Utah Jazz with the flu, you can get them for $104,000. Now, I know some of you guys are sports fans, and Michael Jordan's a legend in a lot of ways because he's so great at basketball, but let's remember, he's just a basketball player, right? He just throws a ball into a net, that's it. That's all. <laughs> That's all he does. <laughs> and I don't mean to disrespect MJ. If he came to Compass, I'd be happy to greet him and <laughs> wear a pair of his Jordans, but that's all he did. Like, and in, but in our culture, he's the great one, right? He's great. Now, Michael Jordan, Michael Jackson, Michael whoever else, Levine, all these people are like great to us. Um, and the, re the, the reasons why are kind of lame. But Jesus should be great to us for so many more reasons. When it comes to the honor, if I wore a pair of MJ, MJ12s and I got the, you know, the flu shoe, cool, all right. I'm not going to pay $104,000 for them, but I'd be excited about that. But how much more excited should we be that we get to reflect Jesus Christ? It's more than just wearing MJ's jersey, which, by the way, one dude was so excited about Michael Jordan that he tattooed his jersey on his back. Like the, the jersey, the whole jersey. And I thought, okay, some people are into that, okay. But look at what we get. We get Jesus. We get to reflect and represent Jesus in our culture. In fact, in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, the Peter and the apostles, actually starting at verse 40, when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then they let them go. Verse 41, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Wow. Could you imagine that? Can you imagine being called in by the police? They're kicking the door. They arrest all you. And they say, all right, you can, you can be persecuted, beat down to a pole for being a Christian, or we can let you go. Which do you choose? And then let's just say you all choose, or we're all going to get beat down. And so you all get your firm beating with the billy club and whatever else. And then at the, later on, you're singing and rejoicing. Wow, we just got to suffer for Jesus. Incredible. Like they're rejoicing about that. They're rejoicing about that. And as should you and I. When it comes, we're not, we're not excited to be hurt. We're excited that we get to represent Jesus. And that's exactly what's happening in this text here. You, you realize that you are just like him. He's the living stone. You're living stones. He was the one who's chosen and precious. You're also chosen and precious. He was rejected. You're rejected. But inside of God, also very precious. That's what we get to have. But not only that, notice, as I pointed out to you, the church is also being built up. And remember, I told you that's passive. The church is being built up. That, that assumes that there's something else acting upon the church. Who's building up the church? The honor is that the church is being built by God himself. Now, I don't know if Jordan has ever actually built a pair of Michael Jordan shoes, but I'm willing to bet that if he built his own pair of Michael Jordan shoes, they'd go for a lot more than $104,000 even if they look janky. People are like, oh, Michael Jordan made them. I want to buy those shoes. The church is built by God himself. 
The church is being built up. What an incredible honor to have the fingerprints of God on the, on the church itself, the one who's doing the work. Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus is part of the building of the church, but God himself is the one who's the active agent. Not only that, let's continue on. Verses four and five again. As you come to him, oops, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Okay, this is where I want you to understand what the spiritual house is now. The house could really be understood as the temple of God. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul said you should act in a certain way because you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's God's Spirit now dwelling within you. And Peter says you're being built up by God through his Holy Spirit as a house that represents him. So not only that, the church represents Christ. We reflect Christ in our lives, but we represent him. Think about the temple or the tabernacle. If you go back to the Old Testament, those buildings were meant to draw attention to the fact of who God was. That the temple and the tabernacle itself was not meant to be the focal point. It was to show that God transcends those things. That the God of the Bible is real and he's glorious and he should be respected and honored. He's now saying, Peter, to you and I, you guys are the spiritual house that God is building. And you now are to reflect Christ in the culture. You're to represent Christ and his glory and his honor. You are now, by God's decree, to be the representatives on this earth for him. Imagine being approached by Michael Jordan. And he says, hey, I want to give you $20,000 a day to wear my jersey and represent me all around Aliso Viejo. Go for it. How awesome would that be? I mean, again, I don't know if you're a Michael Jordan fan or not, but that's essentially what God has done for us. Not the temple, no longer in existence. The tabernacle, no longer in existence. You are it. We are the tabernacle. We are the temple because we are indwelled by God's spirit. And that's what Peter's getting at. How incredible an honor is that? But it gets even better. Continuing on here, look at the, the second half of this. You're a spiritual house. You're the temple of God to be a holy priesthood. Pop quiz. Who could be part of the priesthood in the Old Testament? It wasn't just anybody, right? It wasn't just any old John Doe or Jane Doe who came off the street and said, I want to be a priest. Put me in there, Captain. No, it was a very select group of people that God specifically chose to serve and minister to him by taking sacrifices, by keeping up with the temple, keeping it clean, being the caretakers of it. He says, now you guys, you, Christian, the Christian church, you are now a holy priesthood. By God's decree, you are now God's ministers who minister to him firsthand. Instead of having a building that's ornate and beautiful like this, you are God's building, and now you get to serve in the temple. You are ministers to God firsthand. What an incredible honor that we have in being part of the church of God. Peter concludes this section and he says, not only are you holy priests, but you offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And what's more, at the end, in verses six through eight, the church is vindicated by God just like Christ ultimately is going to be exalted, not only presently at the right hand of God, but eventually every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the end, you and I, young person, even if we're pushed down and persecuted right now, we are vindicated by God. That's why he's quoting the Old Testament. He's saying the fulfillment is still yet to come. Jesus is the cornerstone. He's precious and chosen, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Christ himself will be vindicated by God and then we will be vindicated by God and those who stand against him will be the ones who are crushed by him. In fact, the very last part of verse eight is, is sad. Did you see it there? Kind of hits hard, doesn't it? He says, they stumble, the unbelievers, they stumble because they disobey the word. 
as they were destined to do. It's painful to be associated with the church right now, especially because a church is unpopular for a lot of reasons, not the least of which being that we hold to the Bible as being true and authoritative for every part of our lives. Uh, but understand, even though the church is persecuted, what a great honor it is for you and me to be part of it, to recognize that we reflect Christ. We get to act like Christ in so many ways and that God is himself building the church. He's putting us together. That God lets us represent Christ to a dying culture. We get to be Jesus' hands and feet. And not only that, but we get to minister directly to God because of the position he's given to us as a holy priesthood. Knowing that in the end, God will vindicate Christ and his church. Let's wrap this up with the last few verses here. Uh, verses 9 and 10. Peter uh, repeats himself a little bit to really make, I think, one driving point for us. Look at verses 9 and 10 with me. But you are a chosen race. Again, so the contrast is the people he was just talking about, those who were destined to stumble. He says, but you, Christian church, you are a chosen race. Pop quiz, what race is he talking about right there? He's not talking about a certain race per se. Because what you have to keep in mind here is that even though this originally applied to uh, ethnic Israel, now as the church, look around you. Look at the different people in this room. You know, black and white and brown and all different things. Different people, different races. Paul, uh, Peter, and actually Paul would say that there is no longer Jew nor Gentile, slave uh, nor free. Uh, there's no more uh, Scythian or slave. And he, he brings up different people groups. And he says, there's no longer that, but you are all one in Christ. Peter says, you're a holy, uh, chosen race, which is to say that what's happening here is God's not suddenly going colorblind. It's not like he doesn't see colors anymore, doesn't see that male and female. What's happening is that God is taking all the different races, male and female, and saying, you guys are all now one in Christ. You are a chosen race, the people of God. And not only that, but take a look at this. Not only are you a chosen race, but you're a royal priesthood. You're not just a holy priesthood. You got royalty in your veins now. Because of who King Jesus is, we now get to be co-regents, co-heirs with Christ. We have now a royal authority. And beyond that, you're a holy nation. So you got races and nations being brought together to represent God, a people for his own possession. We live to please King Jesus. For what purpose? And this is really, I think, the driving point that he sandwiches here. That, so that, because of, so you can do this. The middle of verse 9. So that you can proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. And once you would not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. Praise God for that. With this, here's, I think, the driving point from verses 9 and 10. We ought to see these things and realize that God has a purpose for the church and it's evangelistic. You have been saved to see others saved. God isn't done saving people. And God still has a lot of work that he wants to accomplish to the church. And I pray that you understand that. As you see these verses here, I want you to understand first and foremost that God is calling you to boldly live for Christ. That's what it means to be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for his own possession. That's what he means when he says that you're not a people, but now you are a people. You didn't get mercy, but now you got mercy. Peter is excited about your salvation. Are you? Have you been saved? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Peter is excited for your salvation. Are you? Or have you lost your first love? Have you been saved and grown cold? That's the last thing that Peter wants for you. So if you're going to stay in the fight, he wants you to recognize the great glory that has been given you through the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wants you to boldly live for Christ. How do you do at school, young person? Do people know that you're a Christian? 
people realize that you stand up for what's right no matter how unpopular it is? Do people know that you love Jesus most? Or, I mean, one of, the, one of my favorite questions when I do baptismal interviews is, if I were to pull your, your top five closest friends and I asked them if you were a Christian, what would they say? What would your five closest friends say about you? Would they say, oh, they're totally a Christian. Would they be surprised that you're being baptized? I say something like that. And usually I get an affirmative, well, yeah. Well, no, they wouldn't be surprised, actually. They would not be surprised. They, they get that. That's a really good litmus test because if your closest friends don't know that you love God most, then that's a bad sign. It should be oozing off of you. It should be the heartbeat of who you are as a Christian living for Christ. But also, we should boldly share Christ. That's really the point. That's Peter's. He says, well, you've been saved that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his glorious light. The whole purpose of this is not to hoard it. Um, and I know often we get scared. We're, we're a little intimidated by how people respond to the Christian message because it's offensive. It grates against our, our humanity. It grates against our sinfulness. But if we're going to be faithful to God, the whole purpose for which God builds the church is to proclaim his excellencies. Are you doing that? Are you fulfilling the purpose of evangelism in your life, in your sphere? It's easy, I think, in some ways to go out and talk to other people in our lives and say, you should get right with God. I'll hopefully never see you again. But the closest people among us, that's the hardest part, right? That's the hardest part because that costs us a lot more, especially if we're good friends with people and we're like, hey, I need you to know what I'm about. I need you to know what Christ has, what Christ has done for you. That's what God is calling you to do. Boldly share Christ. <sighs> Chapter two really is Peter's desire to help you stay in the fight. We're up against the ropes, but scripture is what's strengthening us. We're up against the ropes, but we're honored to suffer for the sake of Christ. We're up against the ropes, but really, even in the ring, we're trying to win audience members to the team, to team Christ. This week, as you work through your small groups, I really do hope you attend that, by the way, I want you to think about what it might be for you in the future. What, what should you do with this sermon? And really, as I said, you've been saved to see others saved. That's one of our biggest commissions as a church. We're here to see other people saved. And that would be a great thing for you to take away this week. To say, you know what? I need to be more bold for Christ. I need to tell other people about my love for Christ. I need to share the gospel with other people because they need to know Christ. What about your word? How are you doing in your word? Are you, are you living in it? Do you long for it? Or is it just another checklist for you? Have you forgotten the honor that it is to be part of the church of God? Are you ashamed to call yourself a Christian or are you proud to wear the name of Christ even if it costs you something right now? I hope not. We need to be characterized by that. That's what Peter's concern is for the church today, that we'd be characterized by holiness as we love God's word and we're obedient to it.